Hello and welcome back to Diversity Be Like. It's Sequoia and I am here with a very special guest, Amber Cabral. She is a global inclusion strategist, certified coach, author, and international best-selling author of the book, Allies and Advocates, Creating an Inclusive and Equitable Culture. Welcome, Amber. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. I know we got to big up and, and amplify what you got going on. So. Yeah, I'm here for it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself and the work and how you got started. Yeah. So what I do is I have an organization called Cabralco. It's a bespoke, basically meaning small, <laughs> inclusion and equity focus firm. Basically, we do a lot of training and strategy development, largely for retailers and fortune ranked clients and folks that you just like household names are mostly my clients. And we do just kind of quite a bit of experiential learning as well as strategy development for them. As far as how I got into this, I was voluntold to join a diversity council back before there was diversity and inclusion and equity and justice and all these other things. And I did. I mean, I, it was an opportunity. I was working in a call center at the time. It was a chance to kind of get off those phones for a little while. So I, <laughs> I joined. And I love the work. I love that there was some consideration being given to what people were represented in the workplace. And so I kind of just kind of kept doing it. And over time, it, it found its way into all of the other jobs that I took on. And eventually it became my job. I, I actually was responsible for diversity strategy for Walmart, which is the biggest company in the history of the world. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I did that role for about two years before leaving the company and wandering around for about a year before I was like, you know what? I think I'm just going to do this independently. And nice. here we are. Nice. And you also are the chairperson for Brown Girls Do Ballet. For the audience, if you'll remember, Sakia Wallace was on episode number two, where she was telling us about the organization. Tell us a little bit about that and how you got started there. Yeah, that's funny. So Takia actually hit me up. We we knew each other from blogging. So we were friends virtually first. And she hit me up like, I have this organization, which I already knew about because I used to do ballet. So, and she was my friend. And so she was just like, yeah, I need to have a board. So will you chair the board when I'm ready? And I was like, you're not ready today. <laughs> She's like, no, no. But when I'm ready, will you be the chair? And I'm like, OK, sure. And so fast forward, I don't know, seven, eight, ten months later, she's like, all right, we're ready for a board now. And <laughs> you know, it, it kind of came together. So like we've built it from the ground up just in terms of how the organization runs and what the, the business of Brown Girls Do Ballet really is. And I love it. It's a passion project. I'm excited about it all the time. It's been a lot of fun to watch it grow. Um, yeah. I keep telling Takia that she's going to kick me off one day and she's like, <laughs> absolutely never. So yeah, it's a fun job. It's, it's one of the most exciting things I do. And it aligns well with my interests, right? Like it's definitely touching that inclusion, equity, diversity space, particularly for brown ballerinas. So right. it works well with what I like to do. Right. That's one thing about Takia. She has an idea. And like if she tells you she's going to do something, she's going to do it every time, every, every time. time. <laughs> and it's, it's good because I work that way. And so there aren't a lot of folks like that in the world. Like no shade for y'all listening, because you might be one of those people. <laughs> I just haven't met you. But there just are not a lot of people that like really do what they say they're going to do. Like right. hard and fast rule. I'm going to execute. And she is an executor. And so am I. And so because of that, like when I hit her with a tight deadline or she hits me with a tight deadline or we like really have some ridiculous goal, we know that the other one is going to really, really try to make it happen. And we have a great board as well. But yeah, it's having someone that you work similar to really make running an organization that's a nonprofit and always asking for money. So if you want to donate, <laughs> head on out to browngirlsdoballet.com. Um, but, you know, if you are in that position, it makes it good when you have people that are willing to work for the board as hard as you are. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about some operational definitions of, of what you do. Yeah. How would you define bias? Oh, it's a preference, inclination, sometimes a prejudice or or against someone or something like it is. It's also something that happens all the time. Like we think of bias as a bad thing, but bias is it's it's nonstop. You have bias about 
things that you like or don't like. Like, you may have a bias against a certain type of music. You may have a bias against certain flavors in your food. You may have a bias against certain smells. Some of us have a lot of those things in common. And so I try to remind people that bias isn't really bad. It's what you do. It's the behavior that can show up as a result of the bias that really is where the, the problem is. But bias is, I mean, it's happening all the time. You have all this stuff flying through your brain and your your brain takes these mental shortcuts and that's why the bias happens. Right. And it can protect you in instances as well. Definitely right? can. Definitely can. When's the last time you knew how many stop signs you passed on a trip you just took, right? You just stop. You don't have to think about it. You just do it. And that's your bias because your brain has learned this shape with these letters means this. I don't have to read it or think about it or any of that just in my periphery. My brain takes that data and does the thing that I need to do, which in that case is stop, which, of course, is incredibly protective for you. Right. And quite frankly, some stereotypes come from a place of truth. Right. Right. And it's what stereotypes do. (laughs) So it, it really is just the fact that it's not the bias. It's not the stereotype itself. It's what you do with the information that you process. Exactly. It's your behavior that is the problem. We like to talk about bias in a, that's an American thing, I think, too. We like to identify issues as being outside of ourselves. When in reality, like, yeah, the bias is kind of separate from you because you can't really control it. But the reality is you can't control your behavior. And so it's being mindful of what actions you take as a result of the bias that's going on in your life. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. What about culture? How do you define culture? Oh, that's a good one. I haven't been asked that in a long time. So culture is really the simple way I would describe it is like, how does it feel to be here? Like, what does Mm -hmm. this feel like? What is this experience? Mm -hmm. Um, And that can be anywhere. It can be in a particular city. It can be in a workplace. I actually started out doing a lot of culture work. I did a lot of culture work at Walmart. And that's ultimately what it comes down to is like, what do people say about the experience of being here? Is it busy? Is it welcoming? Is it safe? Is it uh, accommodating? Like, what are the words that people use? And so that's essentially what culture is. And when you think about it from an individual perspective, it's still kind of similar. It's what, how do people experience your identity? What aspects of your identity that you experience define you? And so it's, it's kind of like a, about being, really. That's what culture really comes down to. I really love that definition of it because it's approachable, right? I feel like somebody can take that and they can say, you know what, let me do something with that because I understand that. Yeah, yeah. I really make a point in all the work I do to simplify things to like seventh, eighth grade level understanding because I think, not that I feel like I work with a lot of people that just are not above a seventh or eighth grade level. I work with a lot of incredibly smart people, but like you're not smart about all the things. And so when you're learning, it's just really helpful to have like really simple ways of thinking about things so that you can think about application alongside it. You ever had that moment where you're like reading a book and it's like so full of terms that you're like, what did I just read? I have my, <laughs> my dictionary next to the book and I'm going back and forth. Yes, to, yeah. exactly. You're like on your phone, like mm-hmm. highlighting the word and like, look up. <laughs> like, what does that mean? And so mm-hmm. like, I, I don't want this work to feel that way. And it can't. The work of inclusion, the work of equity, the work of just, all of those things can feel really complex and heavy. And the people who are learning ends up at a disadvantage. And the reality is we need all hands on deck. So I try to purposely communicate things in very simple, digestible, easy to access definitions and ideas so that it's easy for you to say, oh, I know how that shows up in my life. And then you can start doing things differently. Absolutely. All right. So last definition, what about allies and advocates? How do you define allies and advocates? And are they the same thing? No, they are not the same thing. So an ally is essentially someone who has taken the time to figure out what is my privilege? What is my power? How do I show up? And how is that different than someone else? How, how does someone that is potentially a different identity that is in a marginalized group, how do they experience privilege different than me? And then developing a sense of empathy for that. Like, oh, wow, you don't have that same access I have. You don't have the same tools I do. And then taking it a step further and thinking about, well, how can I share some of this privilege? How can I create mm. some opportunity? How can I open some doors and support. Um, Mm -hmm. That's what allyship is. So allyship is really about the person, the group, the people, the experience of being able to connect to my experience is different than yours, but maybe there's something that I can do to help bridge that gap. That's allyship. Advocacy is same thing about looking at your own privilege and power in terms of your experience, but then using that to say, 
okay, I'm going to challenge, I'm going to advocate for, I'm going to protect you from. It's dismantling the systems against folks. And so allyship is more about the people, you know, mm. and having that empathy and that connectivity and understanding how I can share my privilege. Whereas advocacy is more about the system. How can I dismantle this system? How can gotcha. I protect you from this system? How can I get in the way of what's happening and the way that that can potentially be a problem for your experience? How can I get the things out the way that are creating the issue around it? So how can I dismantle this system? How can I protect someone from a process that's unjust? How can I create a sense of security? So it's more about the systems where allyship is about the person and extending access and creating opportunity. Advocacy is like, no, I want to push back against this. This is not working. This process doesn't work. This tool is unjust. And so we tend to think of them as the same. We say the words interchangeably, but mm -hmm. allyship is really more so about just having that connectivity. A lot of times you kind of have to have a sense of allyship to show up as an advocate, but it's not necessary. There okay. are times where you can step in as an advocate and say, wait, this is not fair for everyone. And you don't necessarily have an emotional connection or vested interest or empathy for anyone particularly at all. You just aren't here for the equity of it. But the same thing with allyship. You can step in as an ally and not necessarily show up as an advocate. So they work separate and or together. And we need people to do both at very. OK. Time. OK. Sounds good. So just so if I decide that I don't like the fact that not everybody has access to health care. Mm -hmm. Right. And I just say, that's wrong. I think everybody should have access to healthcare. And just the thought of that, that makes me an ally. Yeah, then, you can be a, not, not just the thought, but like you actually saying, I am going to actively take some steps so that healthcare can be accessible to everyone. That's when you get to advocacy. You could become a healthcare advocate, right? Okay. There are advocates for all kinds of like programs, but you are usually an advocate that is trying to take a system down. Okay. Whereas when you are an ally, that's a bit more about like the experience of a person or a marginalized group. It's more about me making sure that I create opportunity and access. I'm thoughtful about how I'm having access to something that's different from you. And being an ally can change from person to person. Like I'm a light complexioned black woman. My ability to show up as an ally in a space is going to look different than a dark complexioned black woman. There are going to be mm -hmm. times where I'm going to be able to serve as an ally for her because of color. Right. And right. so that's within there are circumstances where we might need an ally because neither of us are male, you know, and so right. that presents an opportunity for someone to serve as an ally for us. And so that's a bit different because we're thinking about oh my gosh, you're having potentially a, an experience in the same circumstance that I am where I have some privilege that you don't have. Gotcha. Okay. So I haven't asked this question in a while, but I'd love to hear your take on it. Yeah. So from my perspective, I think that for us to have true respect for diversity, equity, and inclusion, we take this journey. And that journey is from bias, this is where we start, to tolerance, on to understanding and finally through acceptance and then celebration as our final step. If you had to choose the current location for where you think society is in general, and that can be American society or it can be from a global standpoint, you can pick. Where do you think we are on this journey right now? Do you think we're at still at bias? Do you think we're at tolerance, understanding, acceptance, or celebration? Wow. <laughs> And it might not be linear, right? We might bounce back and forth. Well, um, I, I definitely think we bounce back and forth. Like, I think that there are times where I have felt like we were at acceptance. Okay. And I think that there are times, what was what tolerance was before that? I think there yeah. are times that we were at tolerance. But I would say we're probably, I mean, like, I don't know what, I don't remember your exact choice of words, but like, I almost think we're at awareness, <laughs> like right now, mm -hmm. like we're at mm -hmm. We're at the level before, like, I'm willing to tolerate you. I feel like we are definitely on a journey right now where there's just this, oh, shoot, I didn't know this much was involved. I didn't know there were this many layers. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, I also want to say that, like, there's, to your point about it being a journey, while those aren't necessarily like my same categories, that same thought process resonates with me in the sense that we are in different places. And I think it's important to recognize that 
at each place, you need something different. And at each place, there's an opportunity for you. Even once you get all the way to the very top of this continuum that we're talking about, I still think that there is an opportunity that you have to have awareness. You know, if you're at the place where you're like, I get all of this stuff, the practice that you're probably going to have is I need to have patience because I'm I'm probably mm. in the minority in that experience mm-hmm. versus if you are at the place where you are not at acceptance, but you are perhaps at awareness, you need to be really using that question muscle. How can I be curious? How can I, um, in a non-judgmental way, practice having openness to the possibility that someone could be different, not necessarily better or worse in terms of the way they show up in the world? And so I don't know. I think I don't I think generally just given all of the things that happened in 2020 and that are still going on in the world today, I think we're probably the step before acceptance and even some barely tolerance <laughs> like yeah. at times. Yeah. 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 I, I think that we, I don't I, I I think it's not necessarily linear like we talked about, but at times it feels like we're at tolerance and we're trying to skip have you ever like been on a staircase and you've seen like kids on the staircase and like they skip all the stairs and they want to get like from the bottom step to like the top that's kind of what it felt that's what 2020 felt like to me like we were trying to get from tolerance to all the way to celebration without understanding some of those other steps along that way yeah I definitely feel like that's I think that's what people want I think people think it I think people see the work of inclusion and equity as work that has an end point. And that's mm-hmm. probably the biggest point of conversation that I have lately where it's like, no, this is forever. Like you mm-hmm. are always going to be working on some aspect of creating a sense of belonging for identity because identities evolve. And right. so as identities evolve, your perspective has to broaden and you have to shift your ideas and challenge your own biases and stereotypes and all that stuff. So that you too can evolve to accommodate and make space for people to have a sense of belonging. And so, yeah, it's just, it's, I think it's going to be an always working thing, which I think sometimes can make people beg the question, like, well, why am I working on this? And I, I like to remind people like, well, do you want, would you like to be doing this level of this? Like, do you want us? have protests and do you want us right. to be violently fighting against like legal processes and systems and things like that or or do you at least want a place where we are open to the possibility that this is an evolutionary process and we're largely receptive to that transition right like that's that's why you want to work on it so that we can start to be able to have the capacity to do it well right i agree i definitely agree with you so speaking yeah. of evolution one thing that i've heard come up quite a bit over the last few months and maybe even the last couple of years is the idea that if race doesn't matter, why not just take it off job applications, credit applications, rental applications and all of that stuff? Like, why do we even have rent race on the these big life applications that we need? What are your thoughts on that and why it appears on those things? And what, if anything, should we do about that? Yeah, I love that question, actually. Yeah, when you said race doesn't matter, like I made a face because I was like, it does. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> so here's the thing that's really interesting about race. Race is an aspect of identity. It's, it is a manufactured one. And mm-hmm. I won't get into the, the intimate details of like where race originated just for the sake of like time. But like at the end of the day, it is it is a manufactured category. And but it is one that we live by. Mm-hmm. Good, bad or indifferent. And so race has become a part of identity. Now, there are some people that choose to not share that part of their identity. That does not mean that others do not look at them and still see a race, right? Or try to right. assume their race. Right. And so, so long as there is a category that exists, I don't know that I see usefulness in pretending that it's not there. Now, how the category is applied, like the conversation around that to me is an important one. There Mm -hmm. are some places where if it truly isn't a factor, it should not be listed. But you and I know this, there are many other things that can give indication of someone's race, what neighborhood they live in. We segregate by community. Right. So I can make a lot of assumptions and pretty accurately get a good sense of what your identity is by the schools you've gone to, by the community that you grew up, by what city you were born in, right? And so there are... We make assumptions even about people's names, you know, yes. and so it, I think distilling it down to this idea that I can just remove race 
which is an actual part of people's identity that people see as important. I definitely see it as important to mine. It has defined a large part of my life experience. It doesn't really solve the actual problem. The problem is you treat people who are different than you differently, better right. or worse. And whatever we choose to call it, is not really the real issue. The real issue is the behavior around it. And so that's why I'm like, yeah, I mean, we can take it off applications, but are you going to change your processes around those applications? Because I think right. there are places where you don't have it. Right. But we still see those same issues manufactured in those places. Right. So one of the chief complaints that I hear is that it causes people to have something to discriminate against, right? And I do understand where someone is coming from with that point, but I agree with you that, I mean, somebody can look at a name and somebody can look at some of the other things like that you said and make assumptions, right? From my perspective, I look at it as it gives us one piece of a way to identify if organizations are doing the right thing. Right. Because yeah. you can go back and you can look at, OK, well, I can track, you know, it. I can track it. It gives us trackable data. And I think if we take it away, we lose that. And yeah. I think losing that information is far worse than the idea that somebody might see black on an application or see woman, you know, might see disabled or anything on an application and decide to discriminate against that. Yeah, I think that like it's human nature to categorize. And so like removing a category doesn't solve the problem. And to your point, it does allow us to track. But I think the more important work that should be done is like what we should be doing is seeing people as more than one aspect of their identity. Like I am mm -hmm. not just black and woman and in my 30s and you know what I mean? Like I'm I am not just right. that. And so like this idea that we can really make powerful decisions, impactful decisions with like that limited data that are going to have an impact on the way an entire group of folks experience life based on their collection of identifiers is wrong. <laughs> it's, it's right. Wrong. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of the idea of getting rid of race. I don't think it would fix anything. I agree with you that it would eliminate an opportunity to track something and people are just going to find another thing. Right. People right. are going to find another thing. Like before we had the, I mean, before we had the categories of black or brown or white or any of those things, we had other ways of identifying people who were different than us. Right. We are just, this is what we have decided to call this category. And, and I think that's human nature. We'll find another way. People categorize themselves purposely. So right. I, yeah, I think it's, I think it's part of it. It's here to stay. I think the labor is really in just recognizing what work we can do to make sure that whatever category you fall in, we are creating as much of a sense of equity for you as we can. Right. Agreed. Yeah. So throughout the month of February, you had a series where you shared tips on how people and brands could make inclusion actionable. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about what you mean by that and what the sentiment was, where it came from and what made you want to share this with your audience? Yeah. So that was on, I was going to say Instagram, but it's not Instagram, it's LinkedIn. So <laughs> I share a lot. So I, my identity online, <laughs> speaking of, my identity <laughs> online shows up a bit differently depending on the platform. So like I always tell people like I don't really tweet. I tweet, I retweet things people have tweeted about me. I get out there every once in a while and crack a joke or 10. But <laughs> a lot, you know, a lot of it is just like me kind of shouting out, hey, universe, I'm out here on the etherwebs telling you what's going on in my world. And then on LinkedIn, you get a lot more like professional. So because I have a small business I don't think Cabral Co. is not going to be the size of like the big four consulting firms. It's not what I want. <laughs> it's not mm -hmm. how I want to grow. And so, but people still really want access to the way that I present information in the Cabral Co. way of doing this work. And so I try to find other ways to share that because the thing about what I do is that people need to get on board to get things right. done. And so right. you get a lot of tips, tactical, practical advice, in addition to the, hey, I wrote this article type stuff that happens on LinkedIn. And then Instagram is kind of like a mashup of all that. It's like, it's all of me. I'm going to swear. I'm going to have temper tantrums. I'm going to complain about what I watch <laughs> on television. I'm going to have weekends where I play nothing but hip hop. And people are like, oh my God, you know, like, as well as, hey, I wrote this article for Fast Company here. I have a book coming out, blah, blah, blah. Right. So you kind of get like more of my full self on, on Instagram. The reason I decided to do this on LinkedIn is because we're small. We're getting a lot of requests for, can you build our strategy? And when you know how to build an inclusion strategy, it includes a lot of the same parts. It's about asking a lot of the same questions. And I don't have the capacity to do it for everybody. And so mm -hmm. 
I try to create opportunities for people to have the questions and the tools necessary to actually do the work. To actually so you're make. teaching people how to fish. Yes. Right. Like here are the things. Oh, you need a diversity strategy. Here are 28 days worth of questions you can ask in your organization to get you thinking differently about how this works. Because it's not about having this, oh, I have this plan. It's about how it gets into the lifeblood of the organization. And right. so the intention was to provide a way to do that that was free. You no, know, that didn't cost anything. You can go out there and read them and click through and scroll through my posts and take notes. And if you want to comment, I'll react to it and all of that. And I I wanted to have something else for the people that can't pay thousands of dollars or for the people that want my time. And I just don't have the bandwidth right now to be able to still get the support that they, they need to get the work done. So that's where it came from. As far as like what actionable means, oh my gosh, it's like, (laughs) it means to do the stuff. Like we're in this very interesting place right now where everyone wants like a training on or adults and children don't have this problem, by the way, adults have this problem where we think that I took a class on it. So now I know. Right. That's interesting. I took a a class on unconscious bias. So now I'm not unconsciously biased anymore. And I'm like, (laughs) No, you still have to do things. Right. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. It's not. It's not (laughs) how it works. And so the intention is to be able to like give people actionable, like how you do the thing, how you question, push back, challenge, bring ideas to life, give recommendations. It's intended to give folks the action so it doesn't just become oh, I took this diversity class on LinkedIn and I felt good about it. And so now I'm diverse, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's really why I, why I did it. And I thought February was a good month to do it because there's a lot of conversation around Black History Month. There's a lot of expectation, particularly for people that are in the inclusion and equity space to have something to say. And I think it's important to celebrate Black identity. I think that there are a lot of companies that are recognizing that they haven't done the best by Black identity. So like, mm-hmm. what better time than now to have some tactics to figure out how to shift your behaviors so that you can be more inclusive and create a cultural belonging for Black identity and everybody else that works right. there as well. Well, I guess that brings up another point. So over the past year in particular, we've had a lot of companies that have been accused of performative allyship because mm-hmm. they wanted to now take a stance on important issues related to racial justice where they mm-hmm. may be turned a blind eye to that before, Mm -hmm. what would you tell a business leader who wants to stand in solidarity with marginalized communities, but doesn't quite know where to start and also doesn't want to be accused of being a performative ally? Um, You have to have the right motivation. So like the biggest thing that an organization should do if they want to make an impact is be able to know what the impact is. If you don't want to be performing allyship, then like, what's the impact that you are looking for? What is the outcome that you want? If it's, I want more Black people to work here, that's not big enough. Right. right? What, what is the benefit of that? Can right. you explain why it's important that your workforce look more like the community that it serves? Like it's, it's getting really clear about the impact. When you can't name an impact other than, oh my gosh, we don't have any Black people here. Mm you're more prone to fall into that performative thing. The other thing is like, how eager are you for a reward? Are you trying to make sure your name is seen? Are you trying to make sure that you're a part of the conversation? Are you trying to be seen as valid and credible so that that will impact your sales? Are you trying to get likes on the internet? Like if you're trying to do those things, then that's when you start to kind of fall into the performative. So I think it's okay to be new. I think it's okay to be a bit, unclear even about where you are and how you do the work. I often tell clients, like, think of it like a cake, like you're going to make a cake from scratch. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when you make a cake from scratch, let's imagine you have a couple little people that are around that are waiting on that sugar rush. Mm -hmm. And so you start making the mix of the cake, you mix the batter, you do, you know, you're making it from scratch, you're adding food color and all that good stuff. You pour it in the pan, you put it in the oven and you have to wait. Mm -hmm. That's like 80% of the cake. Right. Now Mm -hmm. you've got this nice little bowl of nice, sweet, sticky, lickable stuff. (laughs) All right. You can give that to the little people. Gives them a nice little jolt of, ooh, it's coming. The cake is coming. Mm -hmm. But you can't open the oven because the cake will fall. You can't watch it because you'll be watching it forever. You got to let the cake bake. But you can start working on the icing. Mm. Right. You can add the sugar. You can whip the cream. You can do that. You can make your buttercream icing. 
Mm-hmm. It doesn't take a whole lot of time, doesn't even take a whole lot of energy, but that's only like, what, 20% of the cake. So when you're thinking about bringing inclusion to life in an organization, think about it as a cake. 80% of your action should be that. I got to invest some time. I got to spend some effort. I got to let it cook. I got to work on this. You might not see it. I can't really even see in the oven. Good. I can peek in that window, but I don't get a good view. You have to let it be. And then the other 20%, can be the things that will be visible. And then you always want to make sure you're tying it back to, yeah, we got this icing, but by the way, it still connects to this cake. Oh right. yeah, we got this little bowl that we have left over from when we made the, the cake to put in the oven. But by the way, the cake is still in there. And right. that's really the way you kind of want to think about doing the work so that you, you're going to have moments that will feel a little performative. You're going to have moments that are big and we need some of that to push mm-hmm. us forward. But you still also really need to actually be making a cake because nobody wants to eat just the icing. In fact, sometimes we get the cake and we take the icing off because we're like, right. That's a little bit of the icing. <laughs> right. It's and too so, sweet. It's too it's, much. It's too sweet. I don't want it. And so you'll take that off. And so you, you want to still make sure you're not just only icing. Right. Nobody mm-hmm. wants that. And so right. that's kind of the best way to think about approaching the work and staying out of like the performative problem. I love that analogy. And I think it's funny, too, because. Some will hear this conversation and they'll think that it's just black versus white thing and think that, you know, black people are not performative because I can think of a situation right now at the place I used to work and I almost feel bad about calling them out. But I I think it's important. (laughs) They have a campaign going on now for Black History Month where they have one of my former co-workers who's black as the face of the campaign. And they're trying to get videos of other black people in the space to tell about their experience in the space. And I don't know if it's because I used to work there. Um, It's not a bad organization. And I think at the core, their heart is good. But I think a lot of what they did was very reactionary. And I don't think it, I think it's in line with what they want for the core values, but I don't think it's in line with where they are Mm -hmm. for the core values. And you have people who are Black who are a part of that. So you have the coworker who I know her, so I know she probably volunteered for that. Yep. I know that they have a whole team that is focused on the different things that they can do now to support racial justice and equity and belonging. And our chief marketing officer is Black. And I know that he had (laughs) a hand in that. So I think it's important to note that it's not just having people of color in these spaces. Yeah. That it can still be viewed as performative, regardless of who you have putting it out. It's more yeah, I mean, so black people perform about the cake. Yeah, black people perform all the time. Black yeah. people perform allyship all the time. Black people put on, we're king put on in some cases, depending on <laughs> we don't put on better than anybody else because we have mm-hmm. had to practice it, right? Mm-hmm. And so just thinking about like the, the imperative around code switching, you know, to be able yes. to be successful. And so, yeah, per, black people, anybody can perform allyship. It's just, But you have to remember if you can't really get really clear about what that impact is, great. You had a cute campaign. Right. What's, now what's, what? What? Yeah. What's the output? When you go hire another person that works at this organization, are they going to have a better sense of belonging because you had a cute campaign? Or are they going to get there and be like, yeah, I didn't really see that in the company. <laughs> right. You know? And so it's, yeah, it's, I discourage, everybody likes to be seen doing a good job, but are you also making an impact? You know, doing a good job is important, but are you also making an impact? If you are not making an impact, you can actually measure, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not getting into how many Black folks, how many Asian people, how many millennials, how many veterans. I'm saying actively measure your associate engagement, actively measure. When you send out a survey to your population, are you getting 30% response rates? That tells you something's going on because people don't want to take it. It could be simply that they're overworked, right? So it's paying attention to the nuances of how people are experiencing the culture and getting a good, honest read on that. That's where you're going to really be able to figure out like, oh, here's the place that I could maybe make an impact. Um, But yeah, Black people perform. Everybody performs somehow, sometimes. It's just part of it. Yeah. 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 So let me ask this question. So I'm working on a contract, Mm -hmm. uh, doing marketing for another organization. And in many ways, I feel like this organization is really progressive in how they show up for employees and how they try to build the culture, their stance on diversity and equity, inclusion and respect. And they've revamped the statement, their diversity statement to include belonging now. One thing I found recently, though, 
is that while they have different programs and sentiments that really celebrate diversity, there seems to be a, an apprehension to delve into conversations that get too deep, right? And I'll give an example. We were having one of our virtual coffees and it kind of got into the, one of the topics that came up was there was a lady who was recently removed from an airplane because they thought that her clothes were too provocative. Mm -hmm. And then the topic turned to, well, what does that mean? And whose responsibility is it? Is a woman's responsibility to make sure that she's dressed quote unquote appropriately? Does the airline have the right to kick her off? Is there a level of appropriateness that we should all ascribe to when we're going out in public? Does that differ on place? And a few of us had very strong opinions on it. It wasn't a negative conversation. We were just talking, but leadership got antsy and they were like, oh, this, this doesn't feel good. This feels like it could go awry. So they stopped the conversation and it went back to, well, well let's talk about what's your favorite flavor of autumn is and what's your favorite smell. And we were just kind of like, one of the coworkers even said, you know, hey, I uh, was really enjoying that last conversation, but I guess, I don't know, pumpkin. <laughs> so what is it that so this is a two part question? What can employees do to help organizations create a culture that makes inclusion actionable? And what can leaders do to support their employees who really want to have these discussions, who are really interested in these things and who really want to engage with their coworkers who we're around more than anybody else? Yeah. And these topics. Yeah, this is uh, it's funny because a lot of organizations are at that place like they're uncomfortable. And so they're like, wait, let's not talk about it. <laughs> Here's the thing that I, I tell a lot of companies I, I do training around this workshops actually around this. Because people are stuck. They are defining it as, I feel stuck. I don't feel like I can talk about it. And I'm like, okay, so let's do an unstuck workshop. Here's the thing about this work as a collective. And I, I have an aversion to saying this work because I feel like it's overused. But diversity, mm -hmm. inclusion, belonging, whatever your organization calls it. It's <laughs> uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Period. It's uncomfortable. You know what else is uncomfortable? Moving houses. You know what else is uncomfortable? Cutting teeth. Babies <laughs> do it. You know what else is uncomfortable? Like, I mean, there's a long list. You know what mm -hmm. else is uncomfortable? 2020 was uncomfortable mm -hmm. for everybody. Mm -hmm. I need folks to get detached from the idea that you are owed comfort. You're not. Mm -hmm. And when we are talking about something like belonging, when we are talking about the experience of equity, the expectation should be that you are willing to get uncomfortable. I am willing to hear and learn things that I didn't anticipate would land well on me. I am willing to still be exposed myself to it, right? Like it's mm -hmm. this idea that comfort is owed to us. Oh my gosh, I just get so uncomfortable. I just, I, I freeze and I don't know what to say. <laughs> you are the problem. You have mm. to go past that. You mm -hmm. have to be willing to say, listen, I am uncomfortable having this conversation, but I understand why it's important. Now, if you don't understand okay. why it's important, then we need to have some conversation about that. Mm. And so it's, that is the biggest challenge. Again, I do a whole workshop around getting unstuck because mm -hmm. of how uncomfortable. Oh my gosh, I'm so uncomfortable. We equate discomfort to mean bad. And I'm like, do you know how many people are laid up in a hospital right now that are uncomfortable? Right. That are safe. Right. That are being taken care of. Right. That are on the road to recovery, that are improving. They're uncomfortable though. They are uncomfortable. Right. Tiger Woods is uncomfortable. Right. He's in the best place to be for someone with an injury. Okay. So like we have to just kind of get, a, remove this idea. You know, these words sound really nice. Belonging and equity. And we, we hear this harmonious tone and we think that that is a part of it. And it's not. This is labor. It's intensive. Mm -hmm. It's challenging. It is difficulty. It is growth requiring. And growth comes from being uncomfortable. We mm -hmm. all can agree to that. Right. So it's, it's just really getting folks to the place where they can recognize that, like, this is a growth place for you. It's right. not going to feel great. And so I do a lot of conversations to get folks to that place where they're just willing to get clear on discomfort isn't owed to you. So, like, what is it going to take for you to actually do the stuff even when it doesn't feel great? Right. Because the stuff isn't wrong. You're just not doing it because you feel uncomfortable. It makes you feel icky. But yeah. how? As a leader in my business, can I have these uncomfortable conversations, but still make others feel safe? Others who might not be okay having these conversations 
how do I make everybody feel okay about it? Or, or is that even reasonable to think that everybody needs to feel okay? It's a dual partnership. It's a, that's a partnered answer. Okay. So here's the thing. What you're talking about is actually psychological safety. It's do I feel mm-hmm. safe to assert myself? And then is this an environment that has shown itself to me to be safe? Those mm-hmm. have to happen kind of almost in unison. An organization, a leader, et cetera, has to do the labor of saying, using their words, using their actions, using the way that they lead, using all of those things, those tools, that messages, this is an environment where it is okay to bring your identity. This is an environment where we can challenge, where we can talk about the hard stuff, and it is not going to be disruptive or derailing for your reputation or career. So that's what the organization and the company have to do. And then, I mean, and then the the leaders and then everybody else has to try it because I always remind people, oh, I don't have a sense of psychological safety. I I, I don't feel like I can bring myself to work. Well, have you tried to bring something? I love it, but you got to bring something because if you don't bring anything, these folks don't know. They think you have a sense of belonging. They're like, I keep hearing all of this. We don't have a sense of belonging. I keep hearing that we you know, we need more inclusion, but no one seems upset. I'm not sure. You got to show some of your cards. You got to yeah. show, like, listen, there's a part of my identity that does not fit here and it should. And I have to show you some of that, which means right. that I have to be willing to take a risk that you are going to give me the safety I need. Because a lot of times folks don't know what you need until they understand what's coming at them. So that's a, a dual effort thing. And it is hard. The bigger the organization, the more difficult it is. It's hard. I had a friend that um, posted on Facebook recently and she was asking a question. She was asked to be involved in some of their DEI efforts that the organization was trying to put on. But she had heard about other situations from people that she knows or just in general where people involve themselves in these situations and then work became miserable for them because Mm -hmm. people who now knew where they really stood because they had to be honest and vulnerable in these spaces, use that as an opportunity to to put something against them or take something out on them. And so one of the recommendations I gave her was to talk to the person that invited her on there and ask them what commitments the organization has made to making sure that the environment was safe Mm-hmm. for them mm-hmm. to be open and vulnerable. Yep. And in addition to that, not just commitments, accountability. And so mm-hmm. by accountability, that means that if equity and inclusion are important to you, then you should be measuring how that shows up. And right. it should be tied to how your leaders are incentivized. So if mm-hmm. I have a team and not just, oh, I have four black folks on my team and one Asian person and three women and you know, not that, but there is a way that you can, through evaluation, there are measurements. There's a number of assessments, right? You know, IDI is a great one. I'm IDI certified. Very recently, IDI certified. Great tool to get a sense of where people are on this continuum. It There is a way to get a sense of where you are and then from that be able to say, okay, how do people experience you? Mm-hmm. What are they saying? How is inclusion showing up in this space? You can You can structure assessments to capture that. And you can hold people accountable and celebrate those that do it well. Now, it's a problem. It is a problem if we're not doing it. It's not mm-hmm. just a, oh, I made this commitment and I fell short. It's a problem because it's messing right. with my money. It's messing with my evaluation. It's something that's going to go in my file. Like, right. now it's a problem. So we have to be very strategic about how we can do that. But there is a way to do it. It reminds me. This isn't DNI necessarily, but it is it is an example of, of how we are really good at incentivizing or penalizing appropriately for other things in the workplace. And this should be no different. When I was working at Walmart, this, I can't believe I'm going to tell the story, but I'm going to tell it because I don't want to get no more. <laughs> so well, I can't say everything I want because I took a second. <laughs> but when I was working at Walmart, I had a leader, a white man. We just didn't vibe. I don't know what it was. I, I don't even think it was a race thing. It was just, we just ain't have, it, 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 it wasn't, we ain't happy. Y'all wasn't the same kind it, of people. It, it, it wasn't it, okay? <laughs> I do my job though. I don't got to like you. You ain't got to like me. I can do my job. I don't require that to be effective. Right. So I, you know, I did my job. I did well at my job. And I happened to build a pretty strong relationship with the person who was the head of HR for the entire organization at the time. And kind of in a passing conversation, you know, she asked me if I was okay. And I just burst out into tears. Like, cause I was just like, I mean, I was holding it in that like, I have mm-hmm. this leader that is like not working well with me. 
Mm-hmm. And hierarchical organization. I don't feel like as anybody can really talk to about that. Predominantly white organization. So I'm gonna this little black girl from Detroit gonna ride it out and do what she got to do to have her job. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I had this moment. I just burst into tears, and she's like, "Whoa!" <laughs> and she took it upon herself to kind of just like reach down in her organization, like, "Hey, listen, talent pipeline, what's going on with this one?" <laughs> you know, and. I ended up having a couple follow-up conversations and ultimately I ended up promoting into another role and several other things happened where I ended up not under this leader anymore that weren't even necessarily related to this particular set of circumstances. But this leader knew that the head of HR for the organization, biggest company in the history of the world, had Mm -hmm. stepped in to say, wait a minute, something's going on here, right? Mm -hmm. So I get to my new role. I'm doing my new job. I'm having my new conversation with my new boss. And on my performance appraisal, because they write their comments and you write what you think and then they put them together and you get to decide what the rating is. Mm -hmm. There was a remark that was on my performance appraisal from my previous leader because I had split that, you know, season between Mm -hmm. two leaders. Of course, the gentleman that I did not work well with had opportunity to have a say. And then my new leader, who I had a pretty strong relationship, had the opportunity to have a say, but they were weighted based on how much time I spent with each leader. Mm -hmm. So what ends up happening is the the white gentleman, my my new leader was a black man. um, The white gentleman who was my leader had put a remark that said, Amber needs to know how to manage concerns that she has without feeling a need to escalate to very senior leadership. Just so happens that I happen to work at an organization that had an open door policy, Mm. which means I can go talk to anybody in this company I want. I didn't catch that. But when HR reviewed it, because I was like, yeah, I don't I don't agree with these comments that's on here. Right. Well, the HR partner that was responsible look at looked at it and said, wait a minute, what did that say? Oh, no, 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 no. And I don't know what happened. I don't know what repercussions were made. But what I do know is that he got in some trouble for that because this is our policy. Our policy says that this is how we do business. Right. You don't get to put in someone's a review that they can't go talk to someone else because our policy says they can. Right. And so in the way, of course, in the inside, I was like, great. Like, it's not going to, you know, stay on my review. But on the flip side of that, it was a policy in place. Right. Where are your policies that are in place that create a sense of belonging? Where are your policies that are in place that create equity? Where are your policies that are in place that demonstrate what you will and will not tolerate around how people experience the organization? You can do that. And so you can do the same thing. And that's what will happen. Folks will make them a step and then they'll get penalized. Like, oh, hand slap, shouldn't have did that. That was wrong. (laughs) And so we have to think about this work in that way instead of what it sounds like your friend could be dealing with, which is sometimes we get these people in these diversity roles or they get into these opportunities where they are supporting bringing equity or or inclusion or cultural belonging to life. And suddenly they are diversity. You know, it's one of the Mm -hmm. the conversations I have with clients all the time where I'm like, I don't work there. I am not diversity. And if the only time you have diversity happen is when I'm here giving a presentation or talking to the audience or speaking to leadership, that's a problem. Right. So she sounds like she's experiencing a bit of that where they want to like give her, here's diversity, (laughs) you know, like, do the thing and it's it belongs to everyone. And so you have to have poli- not just commitment, policy has to be in place to help to create that culture that you're looking for as it relates to having an inclusive and equitable experience. I know I feel like I've been talking a lot. I'm sorry. No, that's fantastic. I love that. And I, I love that how you tied it all in together. And I think that, again, it's actionable. It's an item that somebody can take and say, you know what? I've been having this issue of trying to figure out how to make all this tie together and how to make all this work. But you change your policies to make sure that you incorporate those things that that back up what you're saying you want as your culture. Exactly. Exactly. So since starting your business, what are some positive changes that you've seen happen over the years? Oh, wow. So I've been doing inclusion and equity work for 20 years, diversity, equity, inclusion work for 20 years. I have had this business for since 2000. Yeah, 20 years. But I also I was in corporate for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then I stepped out in 20, I guess I was 17 and started doing this full time. And probably the biggest change that I've seen has been that people want to talk about it. And I mean, it's accelerated since George Floyd's murder for sure, but Mm -hmm. people want to talk about it. Like they want to know the right things to say. Now, some of it is, oh my gosh, this is a hot topic. We got to get in there and do our thing. But there are a lot of people that are 
absolutely coming to a sense of awakening like, yo, I have been a terrible human. (laughs) I would Mm -hmm. like to be a much better one than I am Mm -hmm. today. And that was not a thing. I couldn't say racism in an organization a year ago. Like January of 2020, if I said racism too many times, it would have been like, oh my gosh, she's provocative. I don't know. You know, (laughs) but like, you know, now it's like the expectation, like we need to talk about being anti-racist. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. do y'all know what racism is? Let's let's take a few steps before we get to anti. Right. Um, But, you know, there's a, a... a desire to have a vested interest in the narrative because people who care about being good humans recognize that there are so many failures and that they've been participants in it, that they are eager to now lean into discussions that previously would have gone like, okay, you're just, you're okay. Conspiracy theories eh, or whatever, you know, like it would have been a a dismissive. You're just bringing stuff up. You're making stuff up. You're creating issues. Forever ago. Why are we talking about slavery? And I'm like, Mm -hmm. actually, you know, so now people are more receptive to like, oh damn, like this is going on right now. And so I think that's the biggest thing. and, And it's the most exciting. It is it's also sometimes a challenge to work around, but I'd rather work around folks that are like eager to have the conversation and really don't know what they're doing versus folks that are like before where I would get emails that were like, well, here's the list of things you can't talk about. In fact, we don't take clients like that. When I get somebody that's like, here's a list of things you can't say, I'm like, yep, nope. I mean, unless it's like blatantly discriminatory stuff, I'm not, I don't, yeah, we're not, we're not a good fit for you. We're going to talk about the stuff or we're just not going to come do the work. Right. Yeah. We're going to do the work or we're not going to do the work. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Gotcha. So speaking of doing the work, what's one myth that you'd like to debunk as it relates to allyship and advocacy? Mm. Probably the the myth I would like to debunk is that you can't do one and not do the other, like that or that one is better than the other or that they're in some way like hierarchy, like advocacy is way more important than allyship. It's like you can advocate without being an ally at all. I need that. There are mm-hmm. times I need you to step in and you don't have any empathy. You just know this isn't okay. There are times I need you to be an ally and I don't really think that it's appropriate for you to show up as an advocate depending on where your privilege lies, right? So mm-hmm. I, I don't appreciate the stair-stepping of that because I think the way I've seen it, particularly on you know, Al Gore's internet, <laughs> has been allyship and then advocacy or accomplice and then co-conspirator. And I'm like, what's with the criminalizing of the language? Like mm. people are already off-put by these ideas in a lot of ways already. Like, let's just be really clear about what the actions are. You want someone to be an advocate for you. You also really want partnership, right? You want a colleague, you want a comrade, right? Mm -hmm. And so I appreciated the use of comrade in the new movie, Judas and the Black Messiah. There was a lot of, which was a common term at that time. Comrade was how they referred to each other. And so Mm -hmm. I, I think recognizing that like when you have someone that is like lockstep on the same page with you, that is a comrade that doesn't have to be a co conspirator. It doesn't have to have that Um, although I do understand why activism language is sharp that way and I'm not opposed to it. I just also realize that like organizations are going to hesitate when you start using words that sound like I'm committing a crime and And trying to get it to happen. I think you also, it it can come across offensive to those people that you're trying to be allies to, right? Because when we think about the idea of traditionally things that are labeled as white or all the good things, angels are white and all of that stuff. And then things that are black or bad, black cats and white list, black list. I mean, we're still trying to get that out of tech world. Right. So, yeah. Right. So I think when you look at the fact that you are using these words that feel criminal to talk about something that impacts people of color, it just it it, yeah. it just doesn't feel good. It, it, particularly in a corporate world where it's already really, really like you're walking into waters where some of this is brand new. I just try to be very cautious. Now, activism world, we know what you mean. Like, mm-hmm. I know what you mean by accomplice. I know what you mean by a you know, co-conspirator. I'm, I'm good with it. But I, I do think that we need to be a bit more cautious when navigating corporate spaces, particularly those that are new, because I mean, they already barely tipping into the water sometimes, you know, you don't right. want, you know, you don't want to be like, oh, by the way, it's boiling. You know, <laughs> right. Yeah. So I try to be a bit more responsible with that. But like, yeah, I think that's probably the biggest myth is just this idea that you have to master one level before you can be another. And it's really more circumstance, time, place, where you are in your privilege, what your access power is at that time. So that's probably the biggest myth I'd like to dispel around those two words. Gotcha. Yeah. So these are my two favorite questions. Okay. Oh. Okay. <laughs> when people think of your book, Allies Ooh. and Advocates, mm-hmm. what do you want your book's lasting legacy to be? Oh, accessible. When I wrote this book, 
what I wanted was something that I wanted it to be an easy read. I wanted you, perhaps you want to read Higginbotham's book or you want to read Ibram X. Kendi's book. And those books are very meaty. Um, I just finished The Color of Money. Very meaty book. Like just dense with just history and data and like references. And it's like <laughs> a lot. I wanted a book that didn't feel like a lot. I wanted it to be the book that, that's the primer so that you can go and listen to Tanahisi Coates. You can go and absorb these other amazing folks that are in the space that are so mm-hmm. just like, I mean, amazing at putting together the data and communicating it responsibly. But like you at least have like some of that base level where you're like, oh, I know what that means. I can, I can right. start to pick it apart now without being like, wait, I'm lost. You know, that's what I wanted. I wanted this book to be accessible and I want it to continue to be accessible. And so it's a, it's a really simple, digestible, easy read. I think if you are, you could be in middle school and you could be 70 or older. And I think that this book is going to be a read that will feel digestible for you. Nice. Yeah. When people think of Amber Cabral, (laughs) what do you want your lasting legacy to be? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I want people to say that I was committed to being effective and making an impact. That's what matters to me the most. I mean, I'm going to work to have the other things in my life that I think make it rich. But when I leave the room and I think about what I want people to say about me now, what I want is people to say, oh my gosh, I just, I got so much out of that. That was so useful for me. Mm -hmm. And so like, that's what I want. I want to feel impactful and useful and effective and in ways that people are able to carry with them and use in other spaces. Not, you know, sometimes you you have things that are effective for certain things. I want to be effective, like as a whole, I want that right. to be what my life message is about. Nice. I love it. Yeah, that was a great question. <laughs> Thank you. It's my favorite, <laughs> favorite to ask people because it, it's so interesting to watch how you all look when you yeah. hear it. You're so. like, what? Like, my legacy? Hmm. <laughs> Never thought about that before. Yeah, that's a good question. I might like bake it into my classes somehow. <laughs> so, where can people reach you and how can they best support you and the work that you do? Yeah, so there's a few ways you can reach me. I kind of went through the Instagram, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn <laughs> earlier. So, you can always <laughs> hop on one of those, whichever one. Feels like the experience that you'd like to have. If you're looking for a professional experience, LinkedIn, LinkedIn all day. If you want to hear from me every blue moon, Twitter. And if you are really just interested in my whole life, well, <laughs> parts of it I share on the internet because you're never going to get the whole thing. Instagram <laughs> is probably the best platform. But if you're looking to just kind of like get a sense of like where I've been and what I do and who I engage with and what some of the companies are that I support, some of that's on the gram, of course, but you can just hop over to ambercabral.com. And there's tons of links there. There's links for the book, if that's of interest to you. You can also go Allies and Advocates, pop that in your browser. That web domain will take you to where you can buy the book. And then if you're interested in like what the business does, you can go to cabralco.com and get an idea what we do. Although we are really busy right now. So that's a you great thing. Out for services, we're real limited right now on what we <laughs> can do. But I'm growing the staff. You know, there will be more people. We have people that are in training and all of that. And so there will be some more opportunity for work in the future but like if you need something like next week you might not be able to hire me (laughs) because i'm busy but those are the three best ways to probably find me in your domain i love it i love it so much thank you so much for joining me today i have so enjoyed this conversation me too this has been great (laughs) thank you for the work that you do i I think people are going to get a lot out of what you do and i think your legacy is well intact (laughs) will be well intact so you're doing a fantastic job all right thank you so much thanks for making the time (laughs) so that's it folks for another episode of diversity be like if you want to keep in touch with us be sure to check us out online you can follow us on facebook instagram and twitter at at diversity be like you can also shoot us an email at at podcast at mochastock.com also feel free to join the conversation using your favorite social network with the hashtag hashtag diversity be like <laughs> so tell us what you think about being an ally or an advocate tell us about an experience that you had being an ally or an advocate or ask a question and i'll have miss amber answer it for you 
So thanks, everybody. And until next week.